looking at really chapter 30, I'm persuaded that chapter 30 is a good representation of the message of the book of Deuteronomy. So we've looked at the first four books of Moses here. We've considered the law of God. We've considered belief, unbelief. And what we have here in the book of Deuteronomy really is an extended sermon by Moses regarding the past events in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So what we have here really is no new narrative. There's no new information really. But it is a proclamation of Moses to the people of God. And you'll see in here some really uh, perhaps seemingly abrupt prophecies uh, that most certainly come true in the life of Israel, ultimately in the life of the church, we're persuaded as God's people, looking at this from a biblical manner, uh, that Israel is what will, of course, become and what was, even in the Old Testament, the church of God. And so we see that here in this passage. We see eschatological promises to the new heavens and the new earth, even right here in chapter 30 of the book of Deuteronomy. So we have here, uh, really, as I said, a, a summation, a sermon, an extended sermon by Moses. And I would draw your attention to this idea in Deuteronomy that I'll be coming back to a number of times, and that simply is this notion that we should keep moving in the direction of holiness. Keep moving in the direction of holiness. God desires for us, we see here, presented in no uncertain terms, that we have set before us as God's people life and death. We have before us good and evil. Uh, And so he urges us, again, to see this. So again, uh, additionally, this idea of keeping moving, of keeping moving uh, in the direction of holiness, in holiness, also associated with that, of course, this, this idea of the proper use of the law of God. So I'd like to ask a few questions as we begin here. One is, did the New Testament break the chain of means and ends regarding holiness? In other words, is there no longer a connection between our own actions as we enter into obeying the Word of God and the results of those actions? Secondly, did the New Testament remove the necessity to diligently pursue holiness? Did what the New Testament do in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, in the display of the redemption of God's people throughout the entire Bible, did the New Testament remove the necessity to diligently pursue holiness? Next question that I've brought up, I've touched on this in the past. Is it possible that random Darwinian residue in our thinking has inclined us to believe that For instance, the way to inculcate the Bible into my thinking is no longer really connected to diligent study. Or being careful to marry a faithful Christian is no longer really God's way to raise up God followers. Or being a diligent worker is no longer really necessary to enjoy a reputation as a good employee. Is it possible that, again, we we are persuaded that because of really a perversion of the understanding of the law of God as understood in the book of Deuteronomy here, and in the first five books altogether of Moses, that we have have then uh, really scuttled even our ability to understand the means that God has given us to to enter into a life worth living here in this sinful world. 
Because the view of God's law is burdensome, is so pervasive and frequently read into the New Testament, the true purposes of the moral law are lost on many well-meaning believers because it seems to them only a matter of negligible convenience instead of the actual consequential guidebook for life. I'm persuaded that this is reflected in the counseling room as the Word of God is brought to bear. The chain of events going from the means of God's grace and life decisions to their successful outcomes becomes nothing to them but condemnation and judgment based on a statute seemingly no longer relevant. But the statutes of God were always intended to be just as David wrote about them in the Psalms. Oh, how I love thy law. The magnificence of freedom in Christ was always about the freedom and liberty to actually obey God. To actually obey God. Again, there seems to be this random thinking where when I find myself in desperation, as a chaplain to the Marine Corps, what I found often, people would come and ask me and talk to me about things and they would desperately want help. But when they come to me, as I would say, to illustrate this, the house is burned down. And all we're doing is looking for what's left. They never connected this idea that how I act day in and day out is going to impact my life every single day. And how we act, what is the law of God but a commentary on the promise to Abraham. This covenant of grace that was to righteousness for Abraham to believe. What does it mean to believe? The only way that those that followed Abraham would know what it meant to be God's child was to look at the moral law of God. And again, we have in the New Testament an institutional perversion that the Lord Jesus addressed time and time again. His most acidic comments to the Pharisees and Sadducees were based on an institutional misunderstanding that the law was presented to them as a method by which they could work self-righteousness. It was never, ever that. It was never that. And so it's important that we see again, that's why what we look, when we look at the understanding of God's methodology, God's ways, God's paradigm for living, when we look at the New Testament, the foundation for that is in the book of Deuteronomy. It's right here in this book. Most notably right here in chapter 30 of the book of Deuteronomy. So I draw your attention again to this, to this idea. Another significant aspect to this is the significant residue of pride and work as we, with hope, enter into God's commands. We then view our actions, even the action of prayer, as meritorious. We can sense this in ourselves when we lovingly obey, but don't enjoy the outcome hoped for, or when we desire credit for a good outcome. Holiness is the only means of relationship development with God after our redemption, and it is the foundation for our relationships with others as well. Those faithful in the, Old, in the Old Testament understood this. Consider Caleb. Caleb's story here, uh, probably the last we hear of Caleb is in Joshua chapter 14 at the really uh, a significant waypoint in the taking of the land by God's people. Caleb, Caleb says that he is ready to be given the land that he was promised. And he's ready to enter into that faithfully. And he says, it may be that the Lord will be faithful in this and give me this. But again, what we understand is Caleb was maximizing simply this idea that he was following God. That to him was satisfactory and brought about a tremendous contentment. He recognized that following God 
was that which was of his greatest value, not a title deed to some temporary piece of property. We also understand the same idea uh, in the Apostle Paul here expresses the same idea in Philippians as he writes about his Roman imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What? The imprisonment that will ultimately result in the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul. He says, brothers, I want you to know, I want you to be comforted in this. I'm persuaded that what has happened to me is all about the furtherance of the gospel. And in that I am not only satisfied, but joyfully content. Again, we have determined in modern evangelicalism that if I don't get the desired outcome, the desired level of wealth, the desired job that I have, then what has happened is that meritoriously I have not entered into... Again, there's a, there's, a, there's a tipping of the hat of the means of grace, but yet again, there's this idea that it's meritorious. No. No, it isn't. That's the fascinating thing about the Word of God and the ways of God. He calls us to holiness, but we never get God over a barrel. He never owes us anything, ever. But this is the means of grace. This is the means of grace. Some, some, some illustrate it in this way. They say, well, it's in a sense like rain, like getting wet. If you want to get wet, you've got to get in the rain. You've got to step in the rain, in the rain of God's grace. If you want to get wet by the grace of God, you must step in the rain. You must enter into this. But then again, does He owe you rain? No, He doesn't. But there's the blessing. Again, in that, you've obeyed Him. Right? In this step, you have obeyed Christ. And that's what we see here in the book of Deuteronomy. We looked at persistent unbelief in the book of Numbers. And what we see here are the results and what God calls us to is persistent belief. Persistent belief. What does it mean to keep moving in holiness? What does it mean? I'm persuaded that a majority of Christians believe they're primarily responsible for their particular stations in life. And they project that on others with the residue of merit instead of the residue of grace and responsibility. Okay, God has blessed you financially. What are you going to do about it? God has blessed you intellectually. What are you going to do about it? God has given you musical gifts. What are you going to do about it? What you do about it will be a reflection of your view of merit in following God. Historically, even among unbelievers, there was a recognition that if I enter into multi-generational wealth, what I have before me is an opportunity to serve people. It was never seen in the way that it is seen many ways today, and that is simply in conspicuous consumption. What do I do with all that God has given me? Well, because I'm so smart and so capable, uh, what it is is, is I can do whatever I want. But it's never presented that way in the Scriptures. With gifts come great responsibility. With an increase in grace come a greater opportunity to serve people and to love them well. God calls us to keep moving in the direction of holiness and grace. Loving Him and others well 
in actionable expressions of love that reflect the character of God. Yesterday at our graduation for Laurel Anna, Coach Don Bowen said this. He said, it's about when you follow God, basically what he said was, you've got to do the next right thing. You've got to do the next right thing. And that's what it is. That's the, the Word of God to us. Doing the next right thing, right thing by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in that which those people who are redeemed, doing the next right thing. And in that is our joy and contentment. Because we know that like Stephen, who was martyred in the book of Acts, he looks up into heaven and can see the smile of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not enough for us? Is careful obedience really merely an annoyance to a people who are free in Christ? (laughs) Careful obedience. What does it look like today? Well, I will tell you that many in the church look at careful obedience as an annoyance. Why are you judging me? Because of your faithfulness. But all along, it was the intent here was that our own faithfulness would urge people on to faithfulness as well. But how do, even the people of God often receive it as a damning judgment. But it was never that way. It's not that way in the Old Testament. It's not presented that way in the book of Deuteronomy. It's so important for us to understand this. It's foundational. This is the New Covenant. When did the New Covenant begin? When did it begin? It wasn't in Matthew chapter 1. It was in Genesis chapter 3 is when the New Covenant began. And we see that here in the book of Deuteronomy. We're well into the display of God's New Covenant. Right here in the law of God, for the people of God, for the future of God's people. Was the gospel present in the Old Testament? Yes. Yes and amen it was and is. Graham Goldsworthy in his book, Gospel and Kingdom, says if we rightly view the depreciation of the law in the New Testament to apply not to the law itself, but to the perverted use of the law, the proper understanding of the law will also be seen in the Old Testament. Many of us may look at the book of Galatians, for instance, and we may, say in the book, we may see in the book of Galatians this idea that the law is bad. But it's important for us to recognize what exactly, primarily, law is being referred to in the book of Galatians. It's the ceremonial law, and in particular, it's the law involving circumcision, of all things. It has nothing to do with the moral law of God. But we read into the New Testament, again, a devaluing and a depreciation of what the law was originally intended to be. It was always that for us. It was always a way in which we could enjoy life with our Redeemer. Always that. Not a bondage. Again, the two major events, Graham Goldsworthy says, stand behind Sinai. The Exodus, number one, and two, the covenant with Abraham. If the Exodus means anything, it means freedom from bondage. It is clear that the law could not originate at Sinai as a form of bondage. The continuity of the declared purpose of God requires us to place Sinai in the context of God making a people for Himself on the basis of... Grace. But yet there are many well-meaning commentators that want to distinguish and say, no, 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 no. 
Now, what's happening in the law of God, what's happening in the covenant made with Moses is some distinction with that covenant made with Abraham. No, it isn't. I declare to you today, with all of my understanding, the stream of faithful biblical understanding is such that the covenant made with Abraham to believe in God and that it be counted righteous is exposited in the law of God, in the covenant made with Moses. This is urgently important for our people. Because again today, even in modern evangelicalism, we come to people and we come to, to religious leaders and we say, we have guilt. We sense it spiritually. We have guilt. And they say, no, no you don't. No, you don't have guilt. You're justified in Christ. They say, well, I I want to repent of my sin. No, 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 no. Did you do that already? You're done. But we know. Because the, the experience of our own reality and the experience of every individual made on this planet is such that when they sin against God, they feel guilty. What do I do about my sin? Even as a redeemed individual, I must go to Christ. Repent and believe. Just like, just like Jeremy said this morning as we sing that song. Come ye sinners. Come ye sinners. The table of the Lord's for sinners. It's a reminder every day. It seems to us perhaps that the ceremonial aspects of the law presented in the first five books, yes, they are laborious. And it seems as if we've made a distinction such that we no longer have to enter into the laborious aspect of repenting day after day. Really? Well, for instance, you sin against God day after day. If you sin against God day after day, we must go to God and repent of our sins day after day. Is that laborious to you? Is it laborious to you to see a loving Heavenly Father and recognize that this this is life to me? This is a deepening of my relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or will you yet sin and never repent? Sin and never repent. Try that with your friend. Try that with your husband or wife. Try that with your neighbor. Sin against him day after day and see what happens. See that your relationship grows. No, it will not grow. You know this by your own experience. And yet we read this into the law of God and fail to see its beauty. The faithful response to the character of God will demonstrate... That we are God's children. Let's look at a few notes here before we enter into chapter 30. I'd like to touch on a few passages here in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and 9. Uh, I think also 10 here. Then we'll look at chapter 30. So Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the desert, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Sound familiar? But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, when He addressed Satan during His temptations, what did He do? He looked back to the book of Deuteronomy. He proclaimed the Word of God. And He went on. 
In chapter 8, it seems, again, that many think because the Lord was overzealous in seemingly insignificant standards that Israel was set to be cast back into spiritual darkness. In exile. That if Israel as a nation made one misstep, then bam, they're out. But Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 8 tells a different story. Look at verse 11. He says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have been built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through a great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of a flinty rock. He goes on, verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the, mighty, the, the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Verse 19, If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and perish, and rather, and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. You shall surely perish. Summarize, they forget God, lift up their heart against God if they do that. Secondly, if they forget the Lord and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, you shall surely perish. Does that seem so odd? That's nothing but the unpardonable sin. If you persist in turning against God, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We just read it in our responsive reading. When you look over those things that are prohibited from God's people, what are they? They're nothing but a summary of the Ten Commandments. And again, when the Lord Jesus had a summary of the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is that? Is it a summary, or is it a replacement? Again, many, many well-meaning believers would say, no, 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 it's a replacement. No longer am I burdened by the character of God. My friends, it's a summary. It's a summary of the law of God. It's about loving God. And that's why the people so desperately needed. That's why David said, Oh, how I love thy law. Why is that? So I can walk in a way that's pleasing to my Father. Let's look at chapter 9. The Lord tells them in chapter 9 that it isn't because of their righteousness and their uprightness of cart that God is driving out the nations, but because the wickedness of the nations. We see here in verse 4 of chapter 9, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, or it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out. Have you ever been proud of where the Lord has you? Have you ever began to again kind of contemplate and recount how you've gone from step A to B to C to D? Really, in a, in a desire to follow the Lord. And in fact, what, you've, what you have enjoyed uh, are no doubt uh, in some ways the means or the ends of that means that you've entered into of faithfully walking with the Lord. That's a gracious and wonderful thing. It's a promise of God. But when you begin to own that, when you begin to own it in such a way as, oh, this is like a talisman. This is like a charm. This is a recipe. This is a cookbook. No, no, no. No, this is, this is not meritorious. This is following the Lord, right? 
It's following the Lord. The goodness in this is a growing relationship with Christ. In the midst of that, the only way to live on this earth is a life of faithfulness. A life of faithfulness. Gerhardus Voss says this, he says, "...the continuance of God's favor was not suspended in the perfection of every detail of the life of the individual Israelite. God dealt primarily with the nation and through the nation to the individual in the covenant of grace. Although the demands of the law were at various times imperfectly complied with, nevertheless Israel was in favor with God, and even when the people as a whole became apostate and go into exile, God does not on that account let the covenant fail." In chapter 9, we see that while God is constantly calling them to holiness, He goes before them, not because of their holiness. Not because of their holiness. And we also see in chapter 9, there's a simple fact, really, that stubbornness is a big hindrance to holiness. Stubbornness. You might want to ask the question, well, why can't I... As one who's redeemed, persuaded that God has redeemed me, why can't why can't I obey the Lord? Well, we're entrenched. Some of us entrenched uh, distinctly in multi generational sins. You have a passive father, men. You're going to have to deal with that. Because you may, you may stubbornly say, no, 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 this hasn't affected me. I don't see how it couldn't. You get it genetically. Right? So we've got to work again. You have an angry father? You have a mother that's turned away from God? You've got to deal with that. And if it, in your stubbornness you say, no, 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 it's not that way. God says it is that way. It is that. I must deal with this. I've got to take into account these sorts of things. And God's Word can help us with that. It's about heart, soul, and mind. Chapter 10 is a call to repentance. Verse 16 of chapter 10, the Bible says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Sound familiar? John the Baptist said it. It's a three-word sermon over and over again. Lord Jesus, the same thing. When you look at the Bible, when you look at the Gospels, you see that what happens when John the Baptist dies, when he's martyred, what happens? Jesus steps in, right? Makes the same declaration as the last prophet in the Old Testament did, John the Baptist. What did he say? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Follow the Lord. The Lord Jesus said the same thing. Now it helps me, it may help you, but this, this concept, keep moving, which I do encourage you to view as a, as a certain summary in a sense of the entire book of Deuteronomy, keep moving in holiness, also has some historical significance to uh, the military buffs of the day. Nonetheless, a, a place that I served in the Marine Corps, the 2nd Marine Regiment, their motto was keep moving. So it turns out in World War II, 
the commander of the 2nd Marine Regiment, Colonel David Shoup, found himself uh, on the coral reef of the Tarawa Atoll. And at that Tarawa Atoll, they had a number of pieces of machinery that were to carry them into uh, the battle on the island of Tarawa. And what happened is some of those didn't work, and so there were people that were caught on the reef. And he won the Medal of Honor as a result of his insistence that they keep moving. Keep moving. You've got to keep moving in the way of holiness. It's the way of life. It isn't earned, right? It isn't earned. Today, again, in modern evangelicalism, there's this idea, what are we? Modern evangelicals. Call it what you want. I call it do-nothing religion. I'm fat, dumb, and happy in my justification. However, that's not where I live. I don't live in justification. I live in sanctification. That's the stage of life that we are in. We're the church militant, not the church triumphant. The church triumphant is in heaven. The church militant is here. We must keep moving in the direction of holiness. That's the message of Deuteronomy. Let's look at chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Matthew Henry comments, of course, on the entire Bible. It is said he wrote like his father preached. He says in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10 of Deuteronomy, he says this application that we see here is to be found in the Spirit, not in the letter or in the latter, not in the physical aspect. I'd like to read portions of the first ten verses here. He says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast, you're in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there the Lord your God will gather you and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring, in, bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than their fathers. When Israel's disobedience and their desire to return to the Lord provides the impetus for them to return, God promises to restore them and bring all of the outcasts together. They are called people. God's Word provides the means of blessing the redeemed. They are called people. But Palestine can't handle a numberless group. (laughs) It's not that big of a place. Elise is going to find out soon that you can drive over the entire land in a day. Only heaven can contain people that are numbered like the sands of the sea. And so we see that here, promised in Deuteronomy chapter 30. When Israel's disobedience and their desire to return to the Lord provide the impetus for them to to return, God's promise to restore them and bring all the outcasts together, of course, will be made good ultimately in heaven. That's why Matthew Henry says it will take place, and it's a reference to the spiritual 
not to the physical. So you've been broken, likely. You've been through hard times. Did it lead you to Christ? Or were you stubborn? Again and again and again. Or did it lead you to Christ? Here's a question. When a father is broken, grieves, and savingly repents, he has his life restored. To be used as a restoring agent in his family, he must lovingly and strategically persuade his family of the goodness in them, also following the Lord every single day. Yes, he must repent and believe, but yes, as a result of that, he must keep moving in the way of holiness. Will his faith be to them represented by the perversion of God's word as a burden or as a true reflection of God's intent in his word? That it be a blessing in their imperfect obedience. Will my living out the gospel and calling others to live out the gospel and lead them in that way, will they be persuaded that the law of God is a perverted burden? Or will they view that as a loving representation of what it is that God would have? Would it be to them, like David says, Oh, how I love thy law. Now I know what to do. Now I know how to live. That's the idea. Obedience to God makes sinful people feel guilty. Even a redeemed sinful people. While the Apostle Paul calls this spurring one another on to good works in Hebrews 10.24, the cultural understanding, again in many churches, is that if I make you feel bad because of my faithfulness, then I'm a problem. I have to be dealt with. Many evangelicals today have a great urgency to help people feel good about their sin, but this isn't the message of the book of Deuteronomy. This perversion is also called flattery. And it may fill churches, it may sell books. But it's not going to fill heaven. It doesn't lead people to heaven. Flattery will never do that. It is a tool, not of the people of God, but of the enemies of God. The gospel is not about making people feel good in their sin. It's about repenting of sin and trustfully following Christ every single day. That's what Israel was called to in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses prophesies that they will enjoy God's blessing and that they will then persuade themselves and be swayed by the surrounding culture that in fact they themselves are responsible for their bounty and then they will follow after other gods and have their hearts drawn away from the true God. Moses also prophesies that as they return to God and obey Him with heart and soul that they will be restored and all gathered together. The distinction between the Old and New Covenant is not that in the Old Covenant gospel obedience was a means to joy and that in the New we get joy without gospel obedience. God has always attached gospel obedience to joy. Friends, sometimes when people describe gospel obedience in the Old Testament, it's as if their expectation, again, is this perversion of what's actually declared. It seems, it seems as if the idea is that historically the people of God were actually unable to obey the law of God. 
And so therefore, in the New Testament, the whole thing is chucked and you don't worry about it anymore. Is that the message of Deuteronomy? Well, let's look. Let's continue to look here. Let's look at verse 11. For the commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Hmm. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for it for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? It's not too hard? That's not what I heard growing up. That's not what I was told. I was told it was impossible. Obedience to God's law is impossible as a method of justification. But it was never that. It was never intended to be that. It isn't that. It won't be that. It'll never be that. We're justified by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to live? Reflect the character of God revealed in the law of God. Moses' commentary is, it's not too hard for you. As a matter of fact, it's in your mouth. The idea, it's in your mouth. In other words, it's in your language. You understand it. It's not far away. It's near. You don't have to go necessarily hunting for it. (coughs) It's here. It's with us. The all-embracing, obedient response called upon in Deuteronomy is reflected in much much of the New Testament. I draw your attention to Romans chapter 1. This is, a, this is a common passage that you'll be familiar with. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Worship expressed in the details of life. I would draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We see here uh, that holiness, again, is required in a growing relationship to Christ. It must be guarded, particularly in light of the worldly forces inclining us away from him moment by moment by moment. So we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the commandments are not actually too hard. They're not difficult to have access to. They're not difficult to understand. They're in your language, in your heart, placed there by God. What do you think of this? What does this mean to me? Well, verse 15, 
Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. There's a few things that, uh, again, we, as people who are inclined to be stubborn, <laughs> need, to, need to remember and recall. First of all, the law of God is a gracious law. It's given to us by a gracious God. It's given to us in the context of the covenant of grace. It's a good thing. It isn't burdensome. It is not the method by which we obtain righteousness. It is the method in which we walk and grow in our relationship to God and usefulness to Him. But secondly, what Moses sets before us here is something that really is a choice. Now, we've been told, likely as you grew up in churches that weren't as we might think they should be. And what was set before you was also a choice, but it was a choice of self-sovereignty. It was a choice in which you chose whether or not you would live in Christ in a justifying way, a saving way. But we recognize that God doesn't save living men. He saves dead men. And we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's declared to us in the Old Testament as well as the New. But nonetheless, life is full of choices. Life is full of choices for the redeemed. We must keep moving in the direction of holiness. That's what Moses tells us right here in verse 15. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. A choice, always a choice. The New Testament doesn't remove the paradigm of life choice. Tracing outcomes from obedience, you will recognize you actually did choose certain outcomes in life. But we also see that God alone can bring good from bad as He did for the children of Israel. Yes, they will go through the unnecessary pain of bad choices, but God will use even those for His glory and their good. But even this doesn't make choosing right through the keep moving in the direction of holiness negligible. Here's my point. We serve an awesome God who can make good of bad. And that seems to us in our cultural moment to be a reason for which we should look at the ways of God and the Word of God as willy-nilly. It doesn't matter. Because our God can make good or bad. Yes, He can. Yes, He can. But will you enjoy a growing relationship with God? That will come as a result as one who's redeemed, as one who chooses life every single day. And when you look back, look back on your life, you can say, yeah, well, look at that and look at that. It says, again, we have this residue of Darwinian thinking in such that we totally separate the means from the ends. It doesn't work that way. It hasn't worked that way in your life. And it will not work that way because God has created the earth in a different way than that. He's created the earth with the paradigm of morality, a reflection of His own character. 
Verses 16 through 20. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. This should remind you the Apostle Paul in his letters to Timothy and Titus, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live. Now one of the things that we should remember as we think about the children of Israel it is true, as Gerhardus Foss has said, that God dealt with Israel as a congregation, and He dealt with the individual in light of the congregation. You know, there are people that are attached in some way, in an unsaving way, to a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, not unlike ours. And there are some who delight themselves in simply living on the fringes of a congregation, and they never enter in. They're never they're 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 excited about the fellowship meals and about the softball games. They're excited about playing volleyball in the sand. They're excited about getting help when their fence is broken. But they never enter more fully into, and they never savingly enter into the ways of God. That's true. That was true of the nation of Israel. It was true in the reverse as well. Woe be to us! if we think that every single warfighter that perished after 40 years in the desert was a wicked, evil individual. He wasn't. There were some faithful men that died because the congregation as a whole turned away from God. We'll see them in heaven. We'll also see Moses in heaven. And don't forget, Moses didn't get to enter the promised land either. Friends, you may be persuaded that the Old Testament, you were told you could never obey the whole thing. Even the redeemed in the Old Testament. Well, let me tell you something. You can't obey it in the New Testament either. <laughs> you're, still, you're still in the process, right? You're still attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. And perfect obedience is just as impossible today as it was in the Old Testament. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about gospel obedience. We're not talking about what you did. We're talking about what you meant to do. <laughs> what did you mean to do? Did you mean to follow God? Does He know that? Oh, yes. Because He concerns Himself with the matters of the heart. With the matters of the heart. And so, let us be those people. So, where are you today? Are you on the fringes of a redeemed congregation? The display of God's saving grace is all around you, not least of which in the communion table. Will you be content? to be on the fringes, to be on the outskirts of the camp of God and never enter in. Never trust in Christ as the one who alone can be responsible for your salvation. He offers that to you today. Let's pray.